Thanks for listening to iTruths, the teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church of Texarkana, Texas. I'm Richard Hornock, the senior pastor of Fellowship Bible Church, and the following is a message that I delivered during one of our Sunday morning worship services. I trust that it will be beneficial to your walk with Jesus Christ. Thanks again. One of the things that really shows the greatness of God is that uh, God can take mourning and turn it into laughter. Not mourning, sun comes up, but mourning, that crying, that despair. He's the one that takes hurts and turns them into hope. Uh, I love what Isaiah 61 says. Uh, He's taken mourning and turned it into laughter. The the oil of joy in exchange for grief. He's the one that has given us that that new opportunity. And, And somehow in his magnificent wisdom and sovereignty, God is someone who can take failure and Give it a future. And that's kind of what we're going to see today. We're going to, we're at the point in Jesus's life where in a way he's going to turn a corner. He's going to go around a bend and there's basically a, a, a new vista that is on the scene. Uh, today is, is kind of like the final straw. Today is when the decision was made that Jesus has got to go. And humanly speaking, that had to be filled with a lot of despair for these 12 guys who had basically left everything and started following him. But as Matthew tells the story, and as he's telling it for people who are reading it 30 years after the fact, for people who are reading it nearly 2,000 years after the fact, us, he shows that God does what is magnificent. And that is, he takes that hurt and turns it into hope. He takes that failure and provides a future. Now, what's interesting about this passage is when you kind of lay it out, basically what you're going to see here is, is two conflicts, and you're going to see two unique responses. The religious leader's response and Jesus' response. And then what I want to do with the last little bit of the time we've got is just draw three lessons that we can get out of this. So we've been looking at Jesus' life. We've been walking through it. This is like the seventh or eighth message on it. We've seen how Jesus has been presenting himself as the king. There's a kingdom in the future. Everyone was supposed to repent because the kingdom of heaven was at hand. He's the king. John the Baptist was saying that, and that's what Jesus has been saying that. In fact, he he commissioned his 12 disciples to go out and preach that. And he's been primarily working the area of Galilee, which is northern Israel. But as we saw last week, failure was on the horizon. It's like the campaign wasn't going well. He was going to be rejected. And you know, when exactly did that happen? That's what we're going to see. 
Now, the thing that's interesting, these two conflicts, they initially, these two conflicts were primarily over the Sabbath. And that's what chapter 12 is about. It tells about two conflicts that Jesus had over the Sabbath with these religious leaders. Now, before we get to that, let's just, let's just talk about the Sabbath. What was the Sabbath supposed to be about? Uh, this is a sermon for another day, but I just want to take four or five minutes here to talk about it. What was the Sabbath? It's the seventh day. Sabbath means seventh. And Jewish reckoning, the start of a day was at sundown to sundown. So the Sabbath for them began at Friday afternoon at sundown and went till Saturday afternoon at sundown, the seventh day. And it was rooted in the creation story. So it was long before Moses came down the mountain with the, two, the Ten ta- uh, Commandments on the two tablets. It was long before the nation of Israel was a nation of Israel. It was long before God even tapped on the shoulder of Abraham and said, Hey, your family is going to be the conduit that is going to become the, the, the passageway for the Messiah who's going to redeem all mankind. The Sabbath actually is rooted in creation. Remember, in six days, God created the heavens and the earth. And then what did he do on the seventh day? He rested. And actually, if you trace that concept all the way through the Bible, you can see that one of the principles, not a command, it was a command during the nation of Israel, from when Moses brought it down the mountain until Jesus abolished the law. It was a command. But there's basically a principle that you and I really still ought to follow. You ought to have a Sabbath. I ought to have a Sabbath. What what basically is the Sabbath? You know what the Sabbath is in just a nutshell? And like I said, there's a lot more to it. But we're just spending a couple minutes here. You know what the Sabbath is? The Sabbath is a gift from God, a promise from God, that he'll take the work of six days and make it last for seven. Shoot, most of us can work five days and it lasts for seven. There's some of you can work for two days and it could last for seven. But you guys go ahead and work all seven days and you got more than enough. That's what the Sabbath is. The Sabbath is this promise from the creator that is built in to the creation story. And and it is the, the system that's the rhythm that God has instituted where God says, I love you and I want to give you a day off. I want you to, to be able to just take some time. And it's time to reflect, to worship, time to rest. It doesn't mean you don't go out and do some work, some strenuous work, but it's like, hey, you don't have to go doing your ditch digging or witching or creating or serving or whatever it is you do to make a living. You don't have to do that seven days a week. I'm putting into the system that you could get it all done in six days and it'll have, take and it'll feed your family for seven. 
It's a gift from God that you and I look at our creator and say, what an incredible creator, what an incredible blessing. And so even though we're not under Old Testament Israel where we've got a thou shalt observe the Sabbath, for in six days the Lord created everything and he rested on the seventh, and violating the Sabbath is, is, you know, a crime. We're not under that, but you know what? There's still a principle. And so let me just ask you, do you have a Sabbath? I mean, nothing magical to say, and it has to be Friday night to Saturday night. It could be Saturday night to Sunday night. It could be Sunday morning till Monday morning. Shoot, and if you're a preacher, usually it's Mondays, because let me tell you what, we work a lot on Sundays. But do you have that? Or are you one of these seven days a week person that uh, did it. I, I mean, I love the advice that Jonathan has given to all of his younger siblings before they go off to college. And I remember he gave it to Eleanor just a couple days before we drove her up to Chicago. He told her, don't do any homework on Sunday. I don't know whether she's listening to her older brother, but I mean, he's done pretty well with it. And he said, he's got that holy covenant. And I think that's a great holy covenant. Do you have something like that? Now, obviously, you know, we're going to see even the passage we're going to look at. I mean, it was a principle. I mean, shoot, if your ox fell in the ditch, you got to get him out. That isn't easy. That's a lot of work. And since your ox is clearly tied to how you make your living, particularly if you're in agriculture, I mean, it's kind of like working on it. There are exceptions to the rule. But the truth of the matter is God in his grace has given us that. That's what the Sabbath was all about. But you know what we're going to see is the Pharisees in particular, they weaponized it. They totally lost sight of what the Sabbath was all about. And it became all about the rules and regulations. So let's look at this first conflict here. You know what the problem was? They were harvesting on the Sabbath. Now, I don't know whether you've ever had the experience of doing this, but I have. I remember I grew up on the edge of Salt Lake. Uh, the, the developed part of Salt Lake City ended about uh, four blocks from, the, from my house. And then from then on, it was farmland. You go there now, and you're right in the middle of the city. The place has grown so much. But there were wheat fields and grain fields out, just far enough out. And, and a lot of times, the undeveloped lots that seed would blow in, and so there'd be wheat growing. And, you know, what we would do, I'm just going to mark my place here so I can demonstrate. I mean, we would take the heads of that wheat, and we'd go like this, and you get rid of all the chaff and all the stuff, and you'd have a little seed or a little piece of grain in there, and you'd eat it. And you'd do that all the time. Well, evidently, look at the passage, Matthew 12. At that time, Jesus went... At that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath through the grain fields and his disciples became hungry and they began picking the heads of the grain to eat. So they were doing what Richard and his friends did 60 years ago. Well, not 60 years ago, 55 years ago. Okay, my math is bad here. They, they were rubbing the, the heads together. And they're getting those little pieces of seed and just a little snack along the way. 
And you know what the Pharisees said? That's harvesting. I mean, you might as well have got all the ox out and the, the slaves out and all the people out and you're, you know, cutting it and doing it and all that stuff. I mean, you're harvesting. I mean, you're breaking the Sabbath. Do you see how their hearts and minds had totally gotten departed away from what God was even saying there? So verse 2, but the Pharisees saw it and they said, behold, your disciples, they do not, they do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Well, Jesus, and this would take a little longer time to uh, go mine it all out, but I'd encourage you to do it sometimes. First Samuel 21, Jesus said, have you guys never read what David did? When he became hungry, he and his companions, how he entered the house of God and they ate the bread, ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him. It was only for the priests alone. David and his men were fleeing from Saul. Saul was insanely jealous of David and he wanted to kill him. And David was having to hightail it out of any place he was. And he got someplace where the Ark of the Covenant was, the tabernacle. And David knew the priest and he said, hey, me and my guys, we are hungry. And so what does the priest do? He goes and gets the 12 loaves of bread that they made every day. You know, do you forget this detail? Every day, priests would make 12 loaves of bread, fresh bread. And they'd put it out there in the tabernacle. Can you imagine how good that smelt every day. You know, they're killing lambs like they're going out of style. And so they got to have, you know, something to kind of make the place pleasant. And that's what God had had them do. And those 12 loaves of bread were basically sacred. And then at the end of the day, the priest could take it home, feed his family. Well, David and his friends show up and they're hungry. They're needing it. And this priest realizes, man, this is God's anointed, but, you know, the king, Saul, is trying to kill him. These guys need some sustenance. So what does he do? He sees this as, an, as a time like the ox is in the ditch. we got to help out God's person. He goes and gets uh, 12 loaves and says, here, you guys eat this. You know, we're not supposed to release them till 5 o'clock, but, boy, you guys need it now. Go ahead. And Jesus points that out. It's like, guys, do you not recognize you Pharisees? Do you not recognize the, there, there was a basic principle here, but God, even in the law, put into things. Look at the way, where he goes there. Uh, verse, verse five, he says, or have you not even read in the law that the Sabbath, that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and yet they're still innocent? Those priests are working, killing those lambs and all that stuff. But I say to you that something even greater than the temple is here. That's me. And if you guys would understand it, you understand that what Jesus, what, what God said in Micah 6, 6, I desire compassion, not, not just sacrifices. I'm not into just dotting the I's and crossing the T's. There is a basic principle here. And then look at what he declares in verse 8. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is saying, I'm the one who defines how the Sabbath should be kept. 
and because we know that actually it was Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, that really and truly was the creator of Genesis 1, when it said, and he rested, who was it that was resting? It was Jesus. It was the second person of the creator. All things have been made by him and for him and not and apart from him, not anything that was made that was made. Colossians 1. It was Jesus that was resting. And so if anyone should know how to rest and what you can do and what you can't do on the Sabbath, it's me. Well, that was the first conflict. These Pharisees got all outraged that his disciples were harvesting. Look at the second conflict. Healing on the Sabbath. This is great. Starts in verse 9. And departing from there, he went into their synagogue. What's a synagogue? A synagogue was the gathering place where Jews came together on the Sabbath to worship, to learn, to fellowship. He went into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man with a withered hand. And they... Who's the they? It's the Pharisees, the religious leaders. They questioned him, saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And they did this in order that they might accuse him. I mean, these guys said, this guy, every time he sees someone that's sick, every time he sees someone that's hurt, this guy heals him. Let's set him up and see if he'll take the bait and actually heal Do some work on the Sabbath. And Jesus perceived that that's what they were doing. They asked him about it. This guy's got a withered hand. We don't know how it got withered. Maybe it got injured when he was a kid and it just never healed correctly, so it's hanging limp. Who knows? Maybe the guy had a stroke and he lost use of his arm. I don't know. Some reason this guy's hand was withered. The Pharisees see this guy, set him up, and they ask Jesus, Hey, is it right for you to heal this guy on the Sabbath? We know what we think. And since we're the ones that actually run everything, but what do you think? In verse 11, Jesus said to them, What man shall there be among you who shall have one sheep, and if he falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? Is there anyone here that doesn't have enough compassion to go get one little sheep out of the ditch, out of a pit? He is calling their bluff. You, you guys would do that for just a, a sheep. Usually someone didn't have just one sheep. They had a couple hundred sheep. I mean, one falls in the ditch. I mean, you could take that loss if it really was that big of a deal. No, in your compassion, you're going to go help him out. Verse 12, how much more value then is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? I mean, he was just thoroughly disgusted with these religious leaders And their misinterpretation, their misuse of Scripture. I mean, this was the problem. Remember a few weeks ago, we saw how Jesus looked at the masses of people and he said, these people are like sheep without a shepherd. That's just why. Because these were their pastors. Their pastors had weaponized Scripture, biblical truth, 
and we're beating these people to death. And here, the Sabbath, I mean, if there's anything in Scripture that's pretty clearly taught as to what the Sabbath really was, it's this gift from God that you work six days, but it'll make it last for seven days, etc. And yet these people got this thing even messed up. So look at verse 13. Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and it was restored to normal. Just like the other. I mean, it had to be just an incredible sight. Because all these people there, they knew this guy. Maybe they knew when he got injured and the thing never healed right. Maybe they knew when he got sick and it withered or he lost use of it. And they saw it restored. Well, two responses. The first was, how did the religious leaders respond? It's verse 14. I mean, I am sure that when that guy stuck his hand out and stretched it out and it was restored back to health, there was like a general gasp out there in the lobby of the of the synagogue. Sure, it was the Sabbath, but man, what did the Pharisees do? They went out and counseled together against him as to how they might destroy him. Underline, if you're using a real Bible, underline the word destroy. They didn't want to just kill him. They wanted to destroy him. They, they didn't want to just kill him because he might have become a martyr and started a movement. They wanted to destroy everything about him. This guy has got to go. This right there, verse 14, is where it turns. Up until now, up until now, Jesus has been preaching, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's telling the masses, I'm the king. I'm here to institute the kingdom. He's healing people. He's proclaiming the truth. He's telling them how to live as kingdom citizens. When the religious leaders, particularly the Pharisees, the legalistic religious leaders, the people that were so off, they didn't even understand that rubbing your hands together just to get a little seed out of a head of wheat wasn't wrong. That's when these people decided this guy's got to go and everything about him has to go. You know, and let me just stop right here. They were doing this because Satan was motivating them to do it. In fact, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to see that they said Jesus is doing everything he's doing in the power of Satan. And, and where were they getting that kind of an explanation other than from Satan? I mean, it's just, this is satanic. This is when that ugly conflict between God and Satan over the cross, that's, this is when it started to, to rear its ugly head and people with eyes that could see, could see this is God and Satan doing battle here. And this is when Satan 
is, is showing all his fangs and he is going after Christ. And, and these disciples are watching this and people are perceiving it. But the one who perceived it the most was Jesus Christ. And he realized things have changed. Things have changed. Because this is a spiritual war between God and Satan. And you know what? That spiritual war continues even to today. You think about some of the stuff that has occurred, let's say culturally, just even in the last five, ten years. It, it, it is totally seeking to destroy the input of God in, in just general truth. Remember, remember what I talked about? The Sabbath, I mean, the Sabbath wasn't just for Jews. It was for all mankind, all humankind. It, it's rooted in creation. Shoot, the pagan that never darkens the door of a church or a synagogue. Six, work six days. God says, I'll make it last for seven. It is a blessing that I'm giving to humankind. It's rooted in creation. And, and it is designed to point back to the fact that we didn't just come from slop. We didn't just randomly get here after billions and billions and billions of years. No, there is, there is an infinite God who is creator who created us. He designed us. He, you know, we're, whether you want to just say he's the intelligent designer or the clockmaker, or if you want to get realistic and say, no, he is God. I mean, just the simple fact of the Sabbath is supposed to point back to the fact that there is God. Our biology is supposed to point back to the fact that there is a God and we are created in him. He created us in his image, male and female. And yet what are we doing as a society, as a culture, particularly in the last five, ten years? We're saying, no, there ain't a God. We're saying, I, myself, determine my destiny. I mean, shoot, some philosopher said that 250 years ago, but now the guy that hardly even got out of fifth grade is quoting philosophy. I determine my destiny. Where did such bunk come from? It is because there's this major denial of God. We're not saying he's Lord of the Sabbath. We're not saying he's Lord of anything. They are trying to destroy, not they Satan is trying to destroy. And so, folks, if, if, if you're just sitting back and listening and seeing all of this stuff, particularly those of us that have kids or grandkids, and we're saying, oh, you know, it's going to all pan out. and It's not going to be any big deal. Let me tell you, the thing has changed, just like it changed here in verse 14. Satan is still trying to destroy us, God's people. Just like he was trying, they intended to destroy the Savior. They didn't just want him dead. They wanted his whole movement dead. And so this, this is huge. This is huge. That was the religious leader's response. But look at Jesus' response. But Jesus, aware of all this, he withdrew from there. 
and many followed him. And what did he do? He continued to heal them and warned them not to make him known. We've already seen what that was all about. Jesus is, is controlling the message. Because, see, he's still a year and a half away from his appointment with the cross. He still wants to get the word out because there are many people that he wants to give opportunity to come unto him, all who are weary and heavy laden, and he wants to give them rest. And shoot, he doesn't want to push this thing so much that they try to kill him next month. No, he's got another 18 months that he wants to get the word out and share his love and his opportunity with people. And you know what else he's going to do? And we're going to see this. He's going to get laser focused on training Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Matthew, and etc. Because those are the 12 guys that have to pick up the pieces and do the work of the ministry while we wait for the implementation of the kingdom. They're the foundation of the church. And so what we're going to see, starting in chapter 13, he's going to get hyper-focused on training his disciples, us, for how to live in between the cross and the resurrection and his second coming. We call it the church. How do we as Jews and Gentiles who understand who he really was, how do we function in this time when they officially rejected him and his kingdom? That's what he's going to do. So Jesus is doing that. And look at verse 17. All of this was going on so that he could fulfill what Isaiah said. And you might just want to put out in the margin of your Bible, Isaiah 42, 1 to 4. This is almost a direct quote of it. It's one of those messianic prophecies of what Jesus was like. And there's so much here. So much here. But let me just point out a few highlights. Isaiah, speaking for God, said, Behold my servant whom I've chosen. Consider him. Look at my servant that I chose, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Not just to the Jews. I mean, he's going to proclaim it to the Jews, but he's going to not just start with the Jews and be done. He's proclaiming justice all the way out to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the street. A a battered reed, he'll not break off. A battered reed. I mean, think about that. You know, at the start of the passage, he talked about the, the, the disciples in this wheat that was coming up. It's like these reeds that were coming up, and every once in a while they get bumped or bruised. You know, so here's this this little head of wheat that is just hanging on, and it's trying to get nutrients out of the ground and come up through that reed so that that thing really could flourish and, and, and become a useful piece of grain that someone could eat. And a lot of people in life get battered and beat up and all of that. You and I, we're bruised reeds. 
We're bruised reeds many, many times. Life is just hard. And he's saying there, a battered reed will not break it off. He is so gentle. A smoldering wick. Think about a candle. You light that wick, and then sometimes that wick, it just, it just won't take off. And it's, you look at it, and it's like it doesn't look like it's lit, but then you look really closely. It's kind of got that, that, you know, burning, glowing thing. And that, it's like that wick is still doing, but there's not a nice flame like I want coming out of my candles. A smoldering wick, he's not going to put it out. He's going to nurture it. He's going to help you along. I mean, anyone here a battered reed today? Anyone here feeling like you're just hanging on and you're like the wick inside of you is just, I mean, I'm just barely here. I mean, I'm just barely here. I am so worn out. I'm so beat up. I am so tired of living in this intertestamental or, or in this inter-advent time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And it's hard because all hell has broken loose because the enemy wants to destroy a smoldering wick he'll not put out. And he's going to do that all the way until he leads justice to victory. And in his name, the gen- this is something every one of us ought to really get excited about and be happy about and feel thankful for. And in his name, in the Jewish Messiah's name, us Gentiles can hope. He wasn't my gent- my Messiah. He wasn't your Messiah. But boy, isn't that great? He came for me, for you. That's who Jesus is. You know, what do you do with all this? Just in the time I got left, let me put three lessons up here and then I'm going to quit. Don't misuse scripture. Don't misunderstand scripture. If you get anything out of the first part of this passage about how messed up these Pharisees and religious leaders were about the Sabbath, I mean, here is something clearly taught, plainly taught in Scripture, and they had weaponized it. One of the reasons we as a church believe that it is our mission, our mandate, and really it should be the mandate of every church that wants to serve and honor Jesus Christ, is to help you understand the truth of God. I mean, one of the reasons we offer these classes at 9.30 or we offer classes on a Wednesday night or at some other time is so that you can learn the Word of God, so that you can learn the truth of God, whether it's about understanding this passage of Scripture or whether it's understanding this topic like marriage or money or, or anything else that's in your life. I mean, think about what we're offering next week. Anyone need any help with their prayer life? Anyone? Everyone needs help with your prayer life. I mean, unless your help, if your prayer life is that good, please tell me, we'll let you teach it next time. But if you need help with your prayer life, come. Anyone understand the, the New Testament? Say, yeah, I got that piece of cake. Great. David might be out of town one week and he needs a sub that can tell him, can fill in. 
I mean, there isn't any of us that don't need to come to a more complete and full understanding of the Word of God. One of the reasons we want teachers down there in the, with the kids is because it is our job to teach these kids the Word of God. I mean, if we're not going to teach it to them, who's going to teach it to them? When they go off to some state university or some Christian college and we hope that someone will teach them the Word of God, teach them how Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John fit together, you know, I hope they get a little bit. You know, you know. sometimes we, we take great pleasure. Oh, my kid's going to this university. It's a Baptist university or a Methodist university or whatever, a Christian university. Quite frankly, that's what they used to be a couple hundred years ago. But folks, if we don't teach them the word of God, they ain't going to learn it. I mean, no wonder 80% of, of kids that grow up in churches just like ours Never darken the door of a church come August after their high school graduation. There's a tongue over in the dorm after Saturday night partying. Why? Why? Maybe we've never given them a taste of the bread of life. Maybe we've never told them, here's the pearl of great price and it is worth selling everything to hang on to. I mean, the things that these kids are getting out of coming to a ministry like this, folks, it is eternal in value. It is eternal in value. And if we don't embrace it and and share it, they are going to go out and they are just easy targets to be destroyed. Like the enemy wants to destroy And so we need to learn the word of God. Here's the worst thing about us adults. We learn on a need to know basis. I don't know how many times I've been out to lunch with someone or been in a meeting with someone and they'll kind of sheepishly say, now, I know you've preached on this. I know you actually even did a Bible study on this, but can you tell me what the Bible says about? And then they go. And it's like, why do you want to know? Well, this has happened, that's happened. And I I know it's in there, but I couldn't begin to tell you why or where or what it actually even means. I'm not even sure I know what it is. I I think I believe it, but, you know. And it's like, why? Because we listen, but we don't listen. And, and, And the truth of the matter is, folks, that... Learning the truth of Scripture and engaging in the opportunity to grow in Christ, it's like insurance. It's like insurance. I mean, most of us, let's be honest, we wouldn't buy car insurance if the government didn't require us to buy it. Most of us wouldn't buy home insurance, except our mortgage company requires it to us. Most of us would, wouldn't buy health care if they didn't require us to do it. I, cancer, that's what someone else gets. I'm healthy as an ox. You know, what do we do? You know, we look at that, and it's like praying more, New Testament survey, money, marriage, parenting. We don't need that. It's like my dad always said, nobody gets excited until their house is on fire. I mean, Does God need to let your house get on fire before you say, 
you know what? I need to learn about prayer. I need to learn about this subject or that subject or that. I mean, I got to move on. Here we go. Here's another one. Okay, just change change the topic, but Romans 8, 28, everyone should know this. All things work together for good to them that love God who are called according to his purpose. I mean, if ever there was a story in Jesus's life that indicates how God takes all things and works them together for good, it's this one. You know what? They rejected the king. They rejected the kingdom. And what happened? The cross. You know, it's always one of those things. How would that have happened had they accepted? Nobody's got a great answer. But you know what? The truth of the matter is, I'm saved. You're saved. The hope to the Gentiles came about because those Pharisees, God bless their hearts, rejected Jesus. That's all things working together for good to them that love God who are called according to his purpose. He took all this mess. He took beauty or he took ashes and made them beauty. He took mourning and made it joyful. He took something that was dying and he breathed life into it. That's what God does. And then one last thing. We went over it way too fast. But look at what he says there when he quotes Isaiah 42. That's your Savior. That's your Savior. Particularly verse 20. Because way too often we're bruised reeds. We're battered reeds. We're smoldering wicks. And we've got a Savior who loves us and gently calls us. He says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. That's Jesus Christ. That's your Savior. That's my Savior. Is he your Savior? Have you trusted Jesus Christ as Savior? Have you come to the place in your life when you have placed your faith and trust in him and what he accomplished on that cross that he's now going to head towards in our story. You know, you can do it right there in the quietness of your heart. It is simply a matter of recognizing that you are a sinner who needs the Savior and he's the way, the truth, and the life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the privilege of knowing Jesus Christ. Father, help us to recognize some of these truths we saw today. Father, help us to recognize that this is a war that we are in. Help us to recognize that we have a Savior that still jills with us gently because he knows that this war we're in sometimes beats us up and bruises us. We're, we're bruised reeds 
that are here. And we want to to mature and nurture that little seed that would be profitable for your harvest. But Father, we need you to continue to nurture us. And I thank you so much that your son deals gently with us. Father, I pray that the, the, that flame would be fanned back into a roaring fire because sometimes we're tired. We just wonder, what in the world are we doing? Father, help us to recognize that in the midst of this war, you're right here with us with your gentle son. Father, if there's someone here that needs to trust Jesus Christ to accept him as their Savior, I pray that they would do that right now. That they would receive the one who offers salvation and provided it on his cross. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.